If you have God's word, I'd love for you to take it and turn to um, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 this morning is where we'll spend much of our time. And if you will, and are able, um, we'll stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. We'll take up our reading in verse number 1 and end it in verse number 6. Uh, the apostle writes these words to the churches, or church or churches at Ephesus. He says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let's pray. Uh, Father, again, we come to you just to thank you for the precious nature of your word. God, we thank you for the assembling of the saints, God, and their desire and hunger to know you. So, Father, we pray, and it's our ultimate desire that you would facilitate that um, in a way um, that's honoring you, Lord. Um, so in saying that, Father, um, I pray that you'd help me, God, just to be faithful. Just to take your word, Lord, and um, just be faithful with it. Not fancy, not um, crafty, not um, beautiful, not majestic, not eloquent. Just faithful. Uh, Father, that you would just um, guide my tongue, help me to say those things that are profitable, not those things that are not. Not to run on hobby horses or, um, or preach soapboxes, or to declare things that at the end of the day don't really matter. Um, but to simply declare the truth of God's word in relationship um, to the church. Father, we trust you to take it to places that we can't go, to the hearts and minds of men, um, and divine, even asunder, Father, the very thoughts and intents of their hearts. God, that you would declare messages to them that were not even my intent, but that the Spirit of God would just rule and reign in our hearts, Father. Um, even as I preach, God, uh, declare the word of God to me in a way that's a reality, such that um, it transforms my very uh, nature and character now. Um, Father, we just beg you to do whatever you desire to do. And um, pray that we come with a spirit of humility and um, a love for the word and a love for you in such a way that um, we receive it and receive it joyfully. God, we um, ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Once again, we return to the book of Ephesians. Um, we've not been trekking through the book of Ephesians um, verse by verse, but um, we have taken it as our task um, at this time in this church uh, for the last couple of weeks and probably for several more um, to attempt to lay out um, in some fashion um, what God desires in the, the church. So this series can simply be labeled the doctrine of the church um, or that teaching of the church. Generally, we, we like to take the scriptures verse by verse, and we've been trekking through the book of Mark, and it's been wonderful. Um, but I'm convinced in my own heart and life, um, and for the sake and life of this church, that this is, these are things that we need to talk about. Um, we need to know who we are as a congregation. I mean, in knowing who we are, um, we need to know what God expects and requires of us. Um, and that may sound, um, in a certain way, very dutiful and obligatory. Oh, you know, we are this, so 
man, we have to do that. That's not the case at all. Um, Ephesians lays out a glorious um, reality in chapters 1 through 3 of all that Christ has accomplished as in us as individuals if we've came to him um, by grace through faith in Christ. Uh, we were appropriated salvation by faith and repentance as a gift of God. Um, in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, as a result of that thing, like this is what you not only are responsible to do, but um, this is what you can do. This is what you, um, by his blessings and gifts, are able now to do that you were not able to do before. Um, so what we talk about here this morning is for the Christian. Um, what we talk about this morning is for the person who is in Christ. That if you're sitting today, this morning, um, under the sound of my voice, um, without Christ, this is not a possibility for you. Um, this is not something that you are able to do. Um, this is not something that is capable of the unbeliever. Um, these are only blessings and an inheritance that is bestowed upon those who come to Him by grace through faith, have been forgiven of their sins, um, and given a righteousness that is not of their own, in whom now the Spirit of God dwells in such a way um, that He transforms the very character and nature and continues to do that until the day of Christ. Um, and what we desire to do here is to instruct the church, but at the same time to lay out glories for you to make you somewhat jealous if you're an unbeliever, um, that you may long to know um, the beauty, the majesty, and the glories of this Christ, this God. Um, in the last couple of weeks, we've kind of laid out a, a, um, a reality of the church in a, a broad fashion. And in some way, we'll continue to do that this morning. And in the coming weeks, we will kind of hone in on the life and the ministry of the church. But I'm convinced more than ever that um, many people don't know what to do in the church. And maybe I'm uh, guilty of this as well in days past and maybe days present. You know, because we don't um, exactly know who we are. Um, we're, in an, we're, at a, we're at a stage of our, our lives, and maybe in life of the church and in the community and a culture um, that is just, um, just overwhelmed with um, confusion. No wonder it's crept into the church, you know? Um, we talk about our culture and we talk about uh, much of the difficulties and the dangers and the uh, problems with our nation as a whole now, but also much of the world. Um, and it's overwhelmed with uh, concepts and uh, philosophical ideas and ideals um, that are just unbiblical and anti-gospel. Um, things like postmodernism and relativism and, uh, that are just invading and pervading our culture. Um, and that's just fancy words for saying they've abandoned the truth. You know, and the truth is no longer truth. They've not, they've not abandoned all uh, notions or all concepts of truth. They just totally redefined it into, into actually the very opposite of truth altogether. Um, so now when you talk to a person, uh, maybe talk to you, maybe talk to me sometimes even, uh, but talk to most of the culture, you know, um, the ideals that are coming down the pike now that we are to um, accept them and embrace wholesale are ideas like truth is truth, but it's what's true for you is not true for me. That ultimate truth um, is not a concept that, is, that comports with reality. That um, The cultural idea now is that truth is, um, is embodied in the mind. That the only reality that you and I can ever know is the reality that you create in your own mind. Essentially, you become your own God. You know, and that's why boys can be girls and girls can be boys. And that's why you know, a 70-year-old Caucasian man uh, in America can self-identify as a 17-year-old Asian woman. You know? Um, and that's, that's true. And I've watched videos where young people um, will actually espouse that very thing. I mean, what does it hurt? Um, it denies um, the ability to be 
uh, to, to have and to, to acknowledge an ultimate reality um, concerning ourselves. Thus, most of our people and our children are growing up in the midst of an identity crisis with anxiety and depression because they don't know who they are and they're, and they're encouraged to define who they are and, and, we're, and, and they're supposed to embrace that and we're supposed to embrace that. Um, you know, that's probably true for many churches today as well. Churches today um, identify um, as they desire. Um, they are their own captains. They are their own gods. Um, and they pursue whatever their ideal of church is. And they, they create it and they mold it and they fashion it um, around themselves and what they think a, a church ought to be. Um, and thus, much of the world is confused uh, about what church is. You know? And they're confused because they look at this church and they look at that church and they look here and they look there and they see uh, things that are just directly opposite and we all label it under church. Therefore, church has really not meant anything. Just like truth loses its um, definition, so does the term church. When so many people take church and they do anything and everything that they want with it. I mean, it's not our prerogative to do what we want to do here this morning with it. I mean, it is our prerogative to do what Jesus Christ laid out. If there is an ultimate reality and there is a, a defining truth, uh, that determines who we are in Christ, then this is not something that is up for grabs. Um, it's not something that can be molded and shaped by the mind of a man. Um, and, and in doing so, it loses all definition. That as the body of Christ, which um, we, we, we spoke about um, weeks ago, probably two weeks ago now, in a very broad fashion, we argued that, um, that, that the body is to come under the authority of the head. Um, that in the head um, dwells the governing power um, over the body that Paul in Ephesians in chapter 1 and particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 um, identify and give us this image of who the church is. Um, and, and he uses and relates to us a body. Why? Because it's something that we'll all be familiar with. It's something that we'll all understand at least to a, um, at least to a, a, a small degree. Um, that we should all understand, no matter the age, the ethnicity, the um, this or the that, that, that differentiates us, we all share a common uh, reality that we are all human beings and we understand to some extent the body, that the identity um, and the, uh, is associated with the head, that all of the governing power lies within the head, um, and that if we don't come under the head or that there's a disconnection between the head and the body, um, then there will be uh, a number of uh, difficulties, dangers, and, um, and ultimately things that could destroy us as a church. Um, the last week we talked about the bride, and this week I want to uh, begin a study on the body, which will take probably a couple of weeks. I mean, in studying the body of Christ, um, I would probably give an outline like this, although we're really only going to talk about one of them today. Um, I would speak about the authority of the body, um, which lies in the head. Speak about the unity um, the diversity, and the maturity. As we said a, few, a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about the authority of the, the body, which lies in the head. And just to say another thing or two about that, and then we'll get to the unity, um, that if the authority of the head is lost, it will inevitably manifest itself in difficulty, dangers, and um, in the body. We know this from a medical perspective. You know this as much as I do. Listen to a sermon um, within the past couple of weeks by a faithful pastor um, who gave these observations, which I think we can all relate to when we think about someone who has had an issue with 
um, their brain or their neuro neurology, the, the, that, that part which governs the body. Um, that oftentimes, whether it's a stroke or whether it's this event or that event, paralysis happens in that area. What happens? The body is ultimately affected. And he gave these observations in relationship to that physical condition. He says um, that there's a number of things that happen. Number one, individuals are unable to now move properly. Number two, they're easily frustrated because they don't know what they want to do. Um, but they are now, or they, sometimes they know what they want to do, but now they're unable to do it. Thirdly, they tend to be rather clumsy in achieving even the simplest task, which creates frustration. Fourthly, they, normal, fourthly, they normally have difficulty in communicating, uh, since their speech is either impaired or increasingly non-existent. And fifthly, um, they're easily tired out, and, they often, and they're often unable to even continue in the least demanding of exercises. Being in healthcare, and I know that many of you are, you understand um, the nature of that, um, that one of the most um, depressing and discouraging things can be uh, whenever something like that happens and you know what you are supposed to do and you know what you once could do and you know what you could possibly do in the future if you were to carry on, um, but inevitably that's taken away from you whenever something happens in the, her the head or the spine or a number of things. Um, as we quoted uh, from, uh, um, from a faithful woman, um, Erickson Tata, last week, she was a quadriplegic. And who had to come to grips with the fact that she would never be able to do the things that she once did, but ultimately found uh, peace and joy in Christ. But physically speaking, um, it's something that she struggles with every single day. Well, if we comport that, if we, we transpose that over on the body of Christ, I think that we can make a lot of parallels that are, that are true. That when the body is disconnected from the head, um, number one, it'll become apparent that it doesn't move easily or with confidence and authority and ministering with relevance to a godless world. When you're disconnected from the head, you won't be able to speak freely, relevantly, impactfully um, to your unbelieving friends and neighbors because you've lost, you see, um, that connection that is necessary for power and for life. Uh, number two, such a church will constantly display a frustration at the gap between what it should be doing and what it's actually doing. It'll know what it should do, but it won't know how to do that. Um, thus, it'll become ultimately frustrated within the body um, which can lead to even greater dangers. Thirdly, um, it'll seem to take forever to respond and complete even the most straightforward of tasks. And sometimes you'll wonder things like, why does it take so long to get anything um, done around here? If uh, this was any other place and, you know, if this was a business of any sort, like it would go bankrupt. It wouldn't survive. But somehow it, it does. Um, and also, um, it's not only... The information is not flowing from the head in the way that it needs to flow. That's why. Fourthly, the communication of such a fellowship will often be vague and jumbled. No one will actually know what it's saying, or even if it's saying anything at all. And after an unusual exertion, it'll be exhausted at even the simplest tasks and protests that it needs time to be given um, to its recovery. And that's true of the body of Christ. Maybe that's true for some of you. Maybe that's true of this church. You know, that's something that we need to examine you know, because if that is a reality, if, they, if those are some of the physical, spiritual manifestations of this congregation, um, we must realize that it very well could be. It may not be the only thing, but it very well could be um, that there is a disconnection between the head. Are we ultimately um, submissive to the authority of Christ and whom governs the body and instructs it in how it is to go and what it is to do and gives the, and equips and matures and gives the life-giving, uh, sustaining power to carry out the task for which God has given it? 
Um, I know that we're on a process of sanctification. I get that. And we preached that last week or two. But at the same time, in that process, um, the people of God, the, the, the persons of God, the families, the individuals in the corporate church um, uh, has a Christ who during prayer was mentioned seated at the right hand of God the Father who is fully interceding for you and has given you blessings and given us blessings in heavenly places um, that are out of this world and Paul prays and instructs and Paul encourages and exhorts and, and in this passage begs us um, to understand the reality that is within Christ and thus um, allow that reality to flow through us and us to become what He made us to be. Um, are we being what Christ has made us to be? Are we a body in full submission to the head? And I give you that for your own, I give you to that for your own um, examination as it has been a very, um, um, a very great... <laughs> Grievous mirror over the past couple of weeks in my own, my own heart. And we must ask ourselves, what's the problem? If that is the case. Well, I'm going to tell you that spiritually speaking, not necessarily physically speaking, there's a number of reasons um, that stand in the way between the head and the body. But spiritually speaking, I'm convinced that ultimately it's a sin problem. It's a problem of sin. If that be the case, and we are at that point, and and there's frustration within the body, and there's not a clear direction, and there's just tiring out, and there's this and there's that, that um, ultimately it's, um, that, that stands, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue that that stands in the very face of the gospel, um, what Jesus Christ accomplished, and that um, there is something that needs to be identified within the body um, to cultivate a unity, um, because that's the problem. Um, if that be the case, we are not in submission um, to the head, it will inevitably, in some way or some form, um, manifest itself as disunity within the body. And this may not be true for us, but it may be true for us. And if it's not true for us today, it was true for us in days past, and it will be true for us in days to come. Why? Because we are all people with a sinful nature, um, battling with a new man in which we are daily to take off Christ and to put Him on. Um, thus, the Apostle Paul here encourages us in Ephesians chapter 4 to, to strive, to endeavor. Um, to be honest with you, um, in the original language, this is a term that could not be overemphasized. I could not tell you this morning, according to the Apostle Paul after studying the Word, I could not over-exaggerate or do this or emphasize this too much because Paul didn't. Paul used such emphatic language in that word endeavor and in that word strive that he implores also in verse number 1, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, I implore you, I beg you, because of Ephesians 1-3 through 3 and who you are in Christ now, to do and to be this. Um, he could not be more emphatic. And I think we read this passage oftentimes, and we read it in a monotone voice. You know, as if Paul is just scribing it out, sitting behind a lectern and trying to figure out what he wants to say to the people. But I imagine more so now that the Apostle Paul, as he gives us that identifying characteristic, that he's a prisoner of the Lord, that, that, it, that, that, that it's much more um, than just an academic exercise. That he's more than just sitting behind a lectern or behind a desk trying to figure out something eloquent to say so that they'll uplift him and exalt him. But more so, he comes as a, a slave of Christ. He comes as one who sits behind bars chained to a man, possibly because of his faithfulness to Christ, as he's very familiar with prison. With, with prison. 
enslaved to uh, the, the world, as it were, chained to a soldier, um, and, and reaching outside the bars as Timothy or Titus or me or you come to him. Um, and what do they talk about? What does Paul have to say? I imagine Paul was not the small talk kind of guy. You know, who's a Timothy, like how's the family? How's, how's the weather? It's been a while since I've got to see the light of day. Tell me how this is going and how that's going, you know. Um, what's Nero doing this day? No. Like he has such a desire for the body of Christ because it, it belongs to Christ and he belongs to it. Um, that he sits behind bars and Timothy's there, Titus there. He, you're there. We're here there this morning. Christ Bible Church is there. What will he say? He says, as he reaches through the bars, I beseech you, I beg you. How's your walk? With such emphasis and such emphatic language, um, he, he begs them, he implores them to take the truth which they had heard that he had just expounded, um, that reality in Christ, and, and, he, and he prays and he begs them that that reality, that, that they would be so urged and compelled in themselves, that that reality would become a reality externally, not in, only internally. Not only eternally, but also temporally. That here and now, that they would be what Christ died for them to be. He begs them for that. That they would walk worthy of the calling which they, which they were called. That term calling shows up a couple times in Ephesians, but all throughout the Scripture. And it speaks of that divine invitation um, to come to Christ. And as they come to Christ in faith and repentance, and they're brought into the family of God by the precious blood of Christ, they become part of something new, something that they weren't, something different, something eternal, something powerful, something gracious. Um, and he begs them to walk worthy um, and in a manner which accords with their calling. That calling of what they're supposed to be and what Christ died for them to be. He says, I want that to weigh out. That's what the term worth means. Um, it's a word of weight. It means weight. It means value. It's the idea of going to a, a marketplace or going to the public square or going to, to uh, Walmart or wherever it is you guys shop. You know, going online, this and that, and you purchase something, you lay down an amount, and what you expect is you expect to get the thing that you paid for. Like it's, um, it's unjust and it's theft um, to do otherwise, right? For you or, you, or let's say you're selling something, it's theft for you um, to, to, to sell them something and to be deceitful and dishonest and not get them what they think they're buying. That's exactly what Paul is trying to, to, to emphasize to you and to me today. What you're going to see is that in Ephesians, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but just to lay the foundation, is what you're going to see is that Jesus Christ entered into the world to purchase something. He went into the marketplace, just in a similar way that Hosea did in the Old Testament, and God tells them to buy him a wife, and he buys her out of the marketplace um, in the Old Testament days. And in a sense, Jesus Christ enters into the world, and with his own precious blood, um, he buys something. He buys a bride to be solely sim. sim, sim Simply and singularly devoted to Him. He covenants with her and He pays a certain price. And Paul is begging them that if you know what He did in you and you know what He did for you, that at the end of the age when the, balance, when the scales are weighed, what you want to be found is found worthy. You want, it, you want the purchase price to match the actual product. That if Jesus Christ bought you, then there is something required of you. Not so that you can merit salvation, but so that you can live out that, that saving life and that saving grace in the world in a way that's honoring to the Lord. That if this is what He did in you, then this is what you should be. As an individual, as a family member, as a community member, and, and particularly as a church. And what you're to do is to endeavor 
That's another term that is just overwhelmingly um, pregnant with um, so much implications. That you are to strive, you know. Um, again, you can't overemphasize this word, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's simpler, to, like you just get up and you, you run after it. It's interesting that he balances those two out. He says you're going to walk, but at the same time, you're never to quit walking, right? Like I'm not expecting you to run or you to sprint necessarily, although those times will be necessary. But you're to put, uh, you're, 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 you're to put your foot one in front of the other, day in and day out, striving and endeavoring um, to keep the faith. Particularly in relationship to the body of Christ, you're going to do it by endeavoring to keep the unity. Isn't that just phenomenal? Right? Out of everything, like if you're going to write a book and you lay out all the theological implications and then you say, well, what am I going to tell them to do? Um, we'd probably run to later in four, maybe in five, with the do's and the don'ts of Christianity. Paul doesn't do that. And Paul rarely ever does that. Paul begins with attitudes. I mean, he gives, begins with um, character, which will inevitably affect who it is or what you do. So who you are affects what you do. So he lays out things like lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering and bearing with one another in love. And he lays out this character that should be born in the, the life of a believer that's going to undergird the thou shalt not kills and the thou shalt not steals and the thises and the thats, right? Um, the do's and the don'ts of Christianity. Like some of us want to come and like I want that this morning, right? Like I want a church manual that tells me from beginning to end like this is how you run the church. I want, um, you know, this is how you run the family, you have 300 pages and an all-extensive, comprehensive book on like, so that at the end of the age, you'll know whether or not you did it right or you did it wrong. But at the end of the day, that's not enough. Why? Because you can do all the things you're supposed to do and not do all the things you're supposed to do and still be found wanting at the day of Christ. Why? Because um, you were, you, you, it was all external. You know? Some people create the, uh, treat the Christian life like it's just a Christmas tree and you just put on this thing and that thing and it makes it beautiful and therefore you are what you're supposed to be. Um, when it's more like um, a, 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 a root that is born in you, in the soil, and from that fruit grows. Like you are the tree, you know, that produces the fruit. You're more than just a dead um, pine tree or a, a fake plastic tree in which you externally put things on and think that, like, that makes that a, an actual Christmas tree. We're deceiving ourselves every year, folks, <laughs> you know. Um, it's, it's, and we're deceiving ourselves in the Christian life to think that because we did something and we're activity driven um, this week or next week that we've actually accomplished something for the cause of Christ the question that Paul raises in just the way that he writes to us and to you and to, to Christ Bible Church is, is what is the foundation uh, in which um, the, 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 the things that you do are maintained because that's really what's going to matter um, at the end of the age and that one of the things that he really emphasizes, and the thing that I really want to emphasize this morning in just a few minutes that I have, and I can't go exhaustively into this, maybe we should spend multiple sermons on this, is simply the unity of the body. The unity of the body. And that how, um, if we're not under the authority, you say, well, how do we know we're not under the authority? There's many ways, but one of those ways, I, can, I, I guarantee it, um, is that you can see disunity within the body. Thus, the apostle himself um, encourages us he, he commands us, implores us to strive for that very thing. Why? Because he understands the church at Ephesus. And he understands you, he understands me, and he understands this body. If it be of Christ, he understands that while there's an eternal reality that Christ accomplished on our behalf, um, it is to be lived out in the bodies of sinful men. Okay? So just like in Ephesus, 
He understands that there are enemies of peace. And that's what we're arguing for here this morning. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That the unity that Christ creates, He creates through His Spirit born of Himself in accomplishing peace in the life of a believer and in the life of a, a church. I'm going to argue that that is not only a bond of peace, but also a bond of, of love. Um, that, that unity, that oneness that Jesus prays for in John 17 is actually created in Christ as He puts to death the enmity between Him and us and between us and us. And that's actually going to be the argument of Ephesians chapter number 2. But he also realizes um, that we are fallen people. And that who he's writing to is Jew and it's Gentile. And they have particular distemperments one with another. Um, in which need, they need to keep their focus upon the gospel. And that coming out of an old life, they carry many things in with them to the new life. And that even as a church, as a congregation, um, there are enemies to unity and there are enemies to peace. For example, Isaiah 48.22 says, There is no peace, saith the Lord, for the wicked. Um, that it is our natural disposition as unbelievers to come into this world and lacking peace. That this grace has to be bestowed by the Spirit Himself because of what Christ accomplished on our behalf. Um, Isaiah 59 and verse 8 goes on to say that separation is not God's fault, it's man's fault. They do not, that, that, that our separation, if it's today between the head and the body, and even between man and God, it's not God's fault, it's man's fault. Why? Because of man's ultimate rebellion. That they do not, he says, they do not know the way of peace with God or with others, is the argument. That the issue of, of disunity within humanity um, is, a, is, is, is a paramount issue, right? That's, that's an issue today in America. That's an issue today in this community. That's an issue today over in communist China. That's an issue in Russia. It's an issue everywhere. Why? Because men are ultimately born in this state at enmity with God and at enmity with one another. Romans 3.17 says that the path of peace they have not known. They do not fear. That's why they have, that's why they have no peace because they do not fear God. Um, Proverbs says that a warring and a quarreling spirit is perverse, it's a foolish, that that person is actually a fool and ultimately a scoffer. The scoffer is marked by quarreling and warfare. He's the height of all folly. Um, you read the book of Proverbs and what you read is a, 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 a progression in foolishness. And he ends with the scoffer. And the scoffer is a fool, and the scoffer is one who ultimately and, and endlessly quarrels and wars within himself. Um, Paul is arguing that within the body of Christ, once you submit to the head, that there's a unity that should be cultivated within the body um, which, which endeavors to keep that kind of reality out. That the body is a unit, it's corporate in nature. When I say corporate, I mean collective. It's not, it's not an individual person. While the church, while the person is a part of the church, um, a person is a part of the church collectively, not only individually. That when Jesus Christ died, he died for a people, not a person. He died for congregation assemblies, not individuals. I mean, these individuals are to live out a certain way, and that's why Paul encourages it, and uh, because of the reality that they know in Christ, but also, um, we'll get to in just a moment, to proclaim um, to the world who God himself is. That actually to promote disunity within the congregation, whether passively or actively, is actually to stand and oppose um, the practical application of the gospel 
um, to its face. That's the, that's the nature of this. Um, that unity, that, but, and that's why, um, and that's why, um, disunity, disunity is not only so grievous, um, but it is, and should often, and should be endeavored to be fought. Um, but that's also why the world, the flesh, and the devil are so great at um, honing this craft of creating and cultivating disunity, not only in the world, but also within, within the body. Um, and that's what you see. And much of the instruction that the apostle gives and others give um, has to do directly with that. Um, you may be very familiar with the book of James. Um, but where do, where do wars and quarrels come from? You know, um, I listened to a pastor this week and he said he had did a, done a survey on, uh, on what books of the Bible he wanted to, his congregation wanted him to preach. And uh, someone answered, and a lot of them said different things, mostly Revelation probably. That's what everybody wants to hear. Uh, but one of the notes said, not James. No, not James. You know, because James is real. And James gets down to the nitty-gritty. He, he, he gets down to the heart of the issue, and he knows where we are. He knows our tongues are, are, are divisive, and they run rampant, and they're untamable on most days. He knows where pride and strife originate from. Well, where do they originate from? He tells us in James 4.1, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your own members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then therefore, and then on, and in verse 7, you know, you know what you see? You see kind of an exhortation. What does he say? Therefore submit to God. Did you get that? Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Verse 11, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother and speaks evil of the law and judges the law. You know what the, the foundation and the root of the enemies of peace is? It's the uh, wars and the fights that come from us because of our own pleasures and our own desires. Um, they, 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 they root up in us and they produce fruit um, in which we protect our pleasures at any cost and thus it leads to lusts and it leads to murders, James says. And not literal murders, but, but what Jesus talks about murderers. And the Sermon on the Mount, it's so reminiscent, James is with the Sermon on the Mount, almost like he was there um, and took that and applied it. That the desires in our hearts um, are that which where wars come from and quarrelings, and thus we become fools and scoffers in a lot of ways, and we're willing to take up the sword, uh, spiritually speaking, and hatred against our brother, thus cultivating disunity within the body. Well, what's the ultimate um, the resolution of that? He tells us there in verse number seven. There's a problem between not just you and you. There's a problem between you and him. Therefore, submit yourself to God. If you're constantly, continually warring in your members and you want to point fingers at anybody and everybody else, it, you know, the, it, it may not just be them, it may just be you. It may be both of you. It may be both of us. And the ultimate um, reality is, is that we need to submit to God. Why? Um, because we need to bring the body back into connection with the head. There's a, there's a problem there with um, submission. 
That it's not, the traffic is not the issue, the people's not the issue, the persons are not the issue, the politics are not the issue, um, the, 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 the structure, the infrastructure, this and that, it's not the issues. Um, warring and quarreling and disunity within any, uh, any economy that God has, um, has created um, comes down to a problem um, of the heart. It's a want, it's a desire, and it's a lust that I am not willing to give in on, and um, I'm willing to fight for it. And these desires um, are dangerous, and this must be killed. Otherwise, they'll sculpt our actions, they'll sculpt our relationships, they'll sculpt the things that we do do, and they'll sculpt the things that we don't do. Thus, we must examine the desires of our hearts to understand the very nature of war in ourselves. You want to understand war? Examine your heart. Sure, there's some things about battle that you can learn, you know, from actually watching battles and learning through history, and those things are great and those things are wonderful. Um, but, but, but don't do that without actually examining your own heart. If not outwardly, inwardly, right? We are on many days serial killers with our thoughts and our affections. And if God hadn't put the restraints of, of governing bodies over us, this world would have already self-destructed. Why? Because the desires of men's hearts are um, wicked at their very core. Um, and not that you actually think of killing them, but um, as Jesus says, um, hatred in your heart is just as, as bad, right? It goes something like this, meet my needs and I love you, don't meet my needs and I'll kill you to get whatever it is I want. Ultimately, this possession is... Um, is uh, great of greater value than what you are. You know? I think about lust, and I think about the objectification of women, and I think about instruments, uh, men just using them as instruments, and I, and I think that that's not only true of that. I think that's true of all things. You know? Like people uh, uh, war and quarrel over things and are willing to kill people to get whatever they want, and they've, and they've, they've subjugated them, and they've, and they've lowered them to an, an inferior level, and they've said, this thing is more important than that thing, or that person. And they made that thing, they made that person a thing. And they said that this thing is more valuable than that. And that's willing to, 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 to get rid of that instead of get rid of the things because they love that thing more than they love him or her or them or, or, or they. That's the issue, you know? That's the sin. It's pride and it's arrogance. And it's an unwillingness to, 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 to submit ourselves to, to someone else or something else or, or even God Himself in recognizing the ultimate value of that person, particularly in the body of Christ for which whom Christ died. And we're quick. We almost make it a, a manly thing, you know? And, just a, a, and we boast about it, how we're, we're not, we're not going to take anything off of anybody, you know? And we just encourage and we just uphold and we exalt that person who is just, he'll, he'll give his mind, you know, and whatever issue it is. And it's unbiblical, it's dangerous, it's deceitful, and it needs to be crucified because it was crucified with Christ, you know. And the tongue is the worst. The member that is often used, uh, Proverbs 18, 21 Proverbs 11.9. Proverbs 18.21 though says that there's life and death and the power, uh, the power of life and death lies in the tongue. It's in the tongue. And that's why the psalmist also declared that we must put a guard over our mouths. Um, we must protect those things. Um, 1 Corinthians 3.16. 
I'll read a very sobering verse for us. And you know the idea. You remember this is, this is actually, the, the context is this unity in the body. You remember the passage about Paul and about Apollos and about um, all the people that they're following and they've created disunity within the bodily, body and they're following other men, right? Like this is a charge against Corinth. And he's telling them that, that um, we're all of Christ and we're to follow Christ and no one else. Verse 11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear on that day. So you're following Apollos, um, it's going to become clear on that day. You're following Peter, it's going to become clear on that day. You're following Paul, it's going to become clear on that day. Know that. If anyone's work is not, it will, end, if it's not Christ. It won't endure. Verse 15, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Verse 16 is what I want to emphasize. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And I know that in many contexts, the temple means my body. It means an individual. But here I'm, I'm convinced that it means the church. And the idea here is that the temple of God, um, of, of God is His church. It's His people. And that this is a grave warning to divisive people who want to uh, take others away from God's church and away from Christ and to follow in their own pattern and follow in their own life and, and to build their own kingdom. And he basically says, anyone like that, um, you could translate it like this, the destroyer will be destroyed. The, the, I will wreck the one who wrecked, is how one translation could put it. God views those who divide the unity of the body, of the Spirit, and ruin gospel peace as those who have committed a capital offense. We're not talking about people or churches who divide over certain things. There's certain things that you should divide over and that we should divide over. And we'll see that in just a moment. We're talking about a party spirit Divisive people, people of fearful passivity who love themselves greater than God and is true to address the issue. And those who war, fix, has war fixed in their bones, who at the drop of a hat will show how much of a man or a woman that they are. And they're go going to let anyone walk over them. Whether passive or active, both are selfish and at odds with the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is a gospel of peace. We read in Numbers 6.24 that the Lord bless and keep you. This is uh, Aaron and Moses. They're talking. And, he, and he tells, one of them tells the other, go tell this to the people. And he read these words, Lord bless you and keep you as he talks to the congregation, the assembly out in the wilderness. Um, the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace. How? By destroying the enmity between God and man. But that's how. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that very thing. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 11. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made with flesh by hands. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two thus making peace 
That as we said, that when you come into this world, when I come into this world, um, the wicked go estranged from the womb. Right? We're at enmity not only with God, but also with man. Like you don't believe that, you should come to my house sometimes. <laughs> you know? Um, that the kids by nature are not only at war with the governing bodies over them, but also with their siblings. Those on a horizontal as well as a, a vertical level. That we enter in not only at enmity with one another, but also ultimately with God. We don't enter into this world neutral. Um, we're not born with an innocent nature. We have been tainted. Our natures have been tainted by the very, um, the very sins of our father Adam. Even though we had not um, sinned in the same similitude, uh, Romans chapter 5 says, all died and death, and death had passed upon all men. Why? Because all had, had sinned. And thus every man is born into this world, every woman, every child. I mean, given long enough, he will manifest the fruit of his sinful nature. And it, and, it, and it lies at the root of this. Um, he's, he's at enmity. He's at odds with God. And thus, it creates disunity and uh, enmity with man. But Ephesians chapter 2, but God, right? Like God, in His glorious grace and according to His glorious nature, caused Him to do a glorious work in which salvation was extended not only to the Jew, but also to the Gentile. Um, that, that, that it was reconciled and they were brought near by the blood of Christ. That these people who were once afar off and had enmity with God, that the ultimate goal of the salvation of, of, of mankind was to all mankind. That it was not only to be um, uh, hidden in, in under the, the, the bushel of the nation of Israel, but it was to be extended to all the Gentiles. And what had happened through legalistic, lawless uh, religion was that um, Israel had become so nationalistic and self-centered that they believed that all the Gentiles were nothing more than pagans and dogs and thus required the judgment of God. And that one of the reasons that Jesus is actually going to be crucified was the fact that He was preaching and teaching a, 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 a salvation that was extended to all men. I think it's in John chapter 11 and 12, but particularly at the end of 11 where He says, where, they, where, where, where the scribes and the Pharisees and, and the high priests gathered together and said, we've got to kill Him. Why? Because if we don't kill Him, then He will draw all men to Himself. That's the idea. That He will reach the Jew as well as the Gentiles. And we can't have the Gentiles saved. Um, they're not of Abraham. They're, they're not of the, the fathers. They're not of us. They're not born of the seed. Um, they don't have the blessings. Um, and Jesus Christ is ultimately crucified by Rome and by the Jews um, for that very reason. Why? Because the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. But what was created in uh, Israel, as well as with the Samaritans and with all the other Gentiles, was this enmity. This enmity. Read the, 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 the parable of the Good Samaritan, and you'll see the enmity that was between Samaritans, Jews, and Gentiles. Um, such that they were willing to leave a man to die without, and not help him. Why? Because he essentially was getting what he deserved according to their thinking. So what does Jesus Christ do? He comes in. Um, not only to secure the salvation and do away with the enmity between God and man. So that in Christ, that whenever you come to Him by faith and repentance, know this, church. All right? If you're an unbeliever today, know this. That Jesus Christ died for the sins of all the people. All right? Of everyone. Um, or all the sins of those who will come to Him. That, he will, that, that, that when you come to Him by grace through faith, that there is no longer any enmity between you and Him. Between you and Him. That at one time there was. That at one time there was. I think it was um, James chapter 4. I was reading one day, listening to a sermon as well. And um, I read that verse in verse number 7. Therefore submit to God. 
submit to God and um, draw near to God in verse number eight, and he will draw near to you. And I can't think of the exact psalm that comes to mind. But if the unbeliever and the believer alike understand what that says, um, that is one of the most frightening verses in all the world, if you don't know Christ. To tell an unbeliever to draw near to God outside of Christ. Um, and most needs as well. You don't understand the gravity or the weight of that verse because we think we know who God is and we've created him in our own mind. If you read the Old Testament and you read the Psalms and what you find is, is that God is not one to be trifled with. Even believers, as they set before the image of God in, as, as Isaiah did, he falls upon his face. Even the angels cover themselves. And you read the Psalms and many of the Psalms speak of God himself in his essence as a man of war who raises up his bows to, 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 and his arrows to, 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 to do away with the enemy. Right? Speaking of nations and individuals who will exalt themselves to the place of God um, and, 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 a, and a message goes out to all those who are at enmity with Him that their day is coming. That this is the God whom James says you need to draw near to. Like how is that even possible? Through Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins and the extent of righteousness, it has been made able. You've been brought near. You were aliens. You were strangers. You were apart from the promises of God. You were at war with Him and you were about to lose. And Jesus Christ enters into the world to, 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 to give Himself and His own blood um, to pay for your sin debt. That's how you draw near. That's how you come to Him. And, but, but also, practically as a Christian, in abolishing that enmity, like He extends to you grace and righteousness and love in such a way that now the enmity between you and your brothers in Christ is done away as well. That Jew and Gentile who were once at each other's throats are now brought into one man. It's not Jewish Christianity and Gentile Christianity. Paul argues it's one new man. It's one new man through Jesus Christ who died for sinners and was raised from death. God is creating something entirely new. Not just a, few, a new life for individuals, for a new society, but an alienated mankind to create a new mankind in Christ. A magnificent work that no other man could ever accomplish, that humankind and any organization and institution could never bring together. Jesus Christ, by His death, brings these enemies together who were at once at war. This is God's purpose. The corporate unity of the church, uh, one writer says, is not desirable. Is not a desirable end, but a datum to which behavior of its members must conform. Listen, what Jesus, what I'm asking you today, and what I'm asking myself, and what I'm encouraging to you and to me and to all the church, um, is not to be something that you're not. It's actually to conform to a reality that Christ has already accomplished in us. Um, that we are to preserve, promote, and protect the unity of the body of Christ. Because Jesus Christ Himself purchased it. Okay? He not only purchased your salvation, but He purchased unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and you. But also, between me and you. Between us and us. Between Jew and Gentile. He's arguing that unity should be promoted and endeavored and strived for. Not because keeping the peace makes things go better. Right? Like, don't fight, kids. You'll get along. Like, things will go more peaceful in the house. And you should learn to get along because life is smoother when you learn that principle. It'll be easier for you. He's not saying that. 
He's saying that when you consider the awesome price that God paid to secure the salvation of all those who believe throughout all generations and all humanity and throughout all geography, a part of that is their unity and our peace. That that is part of the price of the Son's own blood. Now you, this is what Paul's saying, out of his zeal for Christ, need to make sure that you maintain the unity of Christ in the bond of peace. That if we see that this morning, then we will begin to see that this is more than just a simply good thing to remember and like something that you should work on at some point. Or um, what, you, what you understand is like this is essential. And I remember sitting in my study yesterday and like God was just like reading the text and listening to the sermons and studying. And I was like, this is a gospel issue. You know, so what I had to do, I had to pick up my phone and text a guy. You know, something I was thinking about getting around to at some point, you know. Um, who's apart from the body and is this and that. And I've just, you know, and, and it's like this is more than just like it's a good thing to do. And like we should learn to get along. And I really care about him. And this and like this is a gospel concern. This is a primary concern. We were called to this. Why? Because Jesus Christ purchased this by his own blood. Paul commends us to walk in that. He says, I purchased, walk worthy. Remember, scales are balanced. Right? I purchased this, so, so be this. Be ministers of reconciliation because I reconciled you to me. This is why disunity, factions, and divisions are so grievous to the Spirit of God. Our unity and peace with God and each other. And that's why we are to be diligent to preserve it, to endeavor to do that. Because it's a gospel issue. I love um, that psalm that I read to you this morning. It hasn't been one that really popped out until my studies this past week. But um, you see the blessedness of unity, right? Psalm 133, behold, David says, look, look at this. Hang on, I know you're looking everywhere else, but take a minute and just like think on this for a minute. How good and how pleasant it is for the, for the brethren to dwell together in unity. What a blessing. He says it's like precious oil upon the head running down on the beard. The beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For the, where there the Lord commanded the blessing, live forevermore. You know what he's saying? He's saying that there's a life there in the place. There's blessing there in the place when the brethren dwell together in unity. It has life-giving um, uh, properties. The anointing oil. I know it sounds weird talking about a guy's beard and oil running down it. You know, um, especially in our day. But the picture is glorious. The picture is of the oil that would run down over Aaron's head who was the high priest and that ordination of God with that sweet-smelling savor. The oil is often a picture of the Spirit of God coming upon that man in his ordained position as it's dumped over. And it's, it, it's not just any oil. It's not just um, olive oil. It's, it's, it's oil with certain spices and things in it that would be a sweet-smelling savor. It would be a glorious sight to stand in God's blessing upon this man and ultimately that would extend to the nation as he brings the sacrifices of the people to atone for their sins. That's the idea. That's the kind of blessing it is. It pours out to the people um, in that way that that was the wonders of it. Not only that, but the dew of Hermon. The dew of Hermon would have been the, the, the highest mountain. Hermon would have been a mountain which was the highest. And the dew was just... Was just overwhelmingly concentrated to where um, there would be no place that dew would lay upon it like that. And you know what he says? He says, when that happened on the dew of Hermon, it would float down to the, to the, to the mountain of Zion. Like it, Mount Zion like, got its own dew, like in its own provision, but it also got Mount Hermon's dew and Mount Hermon's provision. 
Like life extended from that down to this. Do you get the idea? Do you get the idea? John chapter 17, we read this a couple of weeks ago. Um, Our Lord Jesus Christ's prayer for the church. He says this, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one as you, Father, and I are in me and I in you. That they may also be one in us. Why, Jesus? That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. That they may be one just as we are one. I and them, you and me. That they may be perfect in one. And that the world may know that you have sent me. And have loved them. And that you are loved. And that you have loved me. Do you get it? Jesus is praying for unity among the body. Particularly those who believe in him. It's a prayer for the body of Christ. And he prays like this, an analogous unity between the Father and the Son. He's like, let that unity be within it. Because when that comes upon the body, the, the same unity that exists in the Godhead, the Trinity, between Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but particularly between the Father and the Son, when that unity is expressed in the body, there is no way the world can deny that the Father sent me. They follow me as I followed you. And when that unity is, 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 is birthed within the body... The blessing flows from Mount Hermon to the world. The blessing flows from Aaron and the sweet-smelling Savior to, 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 to life-giving properties to the nation of Israel. Like, and there's life forevermore. He's saying, um, again, he's not saying simply, you know, it just kills me when you guys fight. He's praying for a unity so that it will be a testimony to the world so that they would know that God the Father indeed sent the Son. And thus it is gospel saturated. And I heard of a story just a couple of weeks ago, I told some of you, about a Canadian church who's under fire and getting just mountains of fines because they continue to gather to meet. A couple of weeks ago, they had a Muslim visit. A man from Islam, devout, who came to the church, um, began engaging with those that were in the church. And um, after he was done, they said, you know, uh, you think about coming back? He's like, I'm coming back. Um, later on, somebody asked him, why in the world did you come? You're Muslim. He said, like if these people are willing to meet, in the midst of so much persecution and fire. i got to know what they believe. You know? Like, that's the nature of it. Maybe we could put it this way. Disunity in the body of Christ is such that when it is thriving, it denies that the Father sent the Son. Churches at each other's throats with different purposes, different plans, different goals, such that it causes enmity between the body and divisions amongst where you have factions and party, um, party, party lines and a number of other things um, ultimately deny that the Father sent the Son. Does it sound like something that we ought to be concerned about? Our relationship on a horizontal level is a testimony to the world of our relationship with God. Maybe you'll um, remember in 1 John when John says, you say that you love your brother. Um, but essentially, whenever he comes, you, do, you don't help him. You don't love your brother, then you've denied me. You say that you love me and you love your brother, but it's, it's evident that you don't love me because you don't love your brother. You know? You may say at this point, then, well, we, we need to unify all the denominations in the area. You know, have a world council of churches. That's not what I'm arguing either. Although that may be good and healthy, and if you can do that, the glory be to God. But I think what he's talking about here is simply love. If you were to go to first, um, Colossians, not first Colossians, I think in first Corinthians and Colossians, and they mold it into a new book of the Bible. Um, Colossians 
chapter number one, or three, sorry, chapter number three, um, you see a parallel passage here from Ephesians. Oftentimes, uh, Colossians has been referred to as Ephesians' sister. Um, Paul writes many of the same things, and this is what you read um, in a parallel um, passage. Verse number eight. But now you yourselves put off all these. What? Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge. Verse number 11. Oh, let's just finish that one. According to the image of him who created him. Uh, where there is neither Greek nor Jew. Sound familiar? Circumcised nor uncircumcised. Barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free. But Christ is all in all. Therefore... As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Remember that? That's Ephesians 4.2. Bearing with one another, Ephesians 4.2. And forgiving one another, Ephesians 4.2. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you, almost, so you also must do. But above all th- these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection or completeness. It is the bond of peace in Ephesians chapter 2. What is love? Put on love. Carry love. Ephesians chapter number 4, which we were initially at. Say, how do we keep the unity? You put on love is what he argues in verse number 2. How are you going to endeavor? You do it with all lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. That's the idea. And we could go on and on and on and on how God hates strife and how God loves love. And um, I would encourage you to go to Galatians chapter 5 sometime and look at verse number 19 and all of the, the, the things that won't inherit the kingdom of God. Um, maybe I'll turn there since I'm right there. Galatians chapter number 9, or 5, sorry, verse number 19. It's on the heels of the fruit of the Spirit, which eventually it'll get to. But you read these words. These are the works of the flesh that are evident, which are... Um, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. Like, yeah, man, those things want to inherit the kingdom of God. We're on board, right? You know what else he says? Hatred. Contentions. Jealousies. Outbursts of wrath. Selfish ambitions. Dissensions. Then he goes on, we're back on board with heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. You know what he says? He says, the way that you... Um, engage with the world and with one another matters. It's relational. It actually affects the, your ability, um, your, your, your eternal reality. That, that, that sins like these that characterize a particular person has no hope in the inheritance of the kingdom of God. If that characterizes you, why? Because the, 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 the gospel made you different. Not that you'll be perfect, but that you'll spend your life seeking after and endeavoring and striving um, to love one another. That's the idea. That's the idea. That unity is worth fighting for because Jesus purchased it. How do we engage and endeavor um, in unity? You, um, man, there's so much practical information that I may say for you next week. But let me give you this. It begins with humility. It begins with humility. Low, maybe yours says lowliness of mind. Of course, it's a contrast to high-mindedness. It's the very character and nature of Christ. It would, it's more than just a self-deprecating ideal of oneself to where you beat yourself up all day long. We look at that and we're like, oh, that's a humble person. He has a low view of himself. But that's not humility. Sometimes that can actually be pride. Um, self-effacing, self-deprecation, superficial uh, mourning. It could just be God. It could be worldly sorrow. The biblically humble person recognizes their worth in Christ. 
but never to the point of elevating themselves above anyone else or anything else um, and making themselves the center of the universe. Humility was um, it's to esteem others higher than themselves because of what Christ accomplished and because He's the very nature of Christ. It would be a proper view of oneself in light of revelation, our own sinfulness, and in light of God's truth and what He accomplished on our behalf. It's just to recognize who you are and the reality of who you are. And that's what you're to do. How do we keep the unity? You recognize who you are in God's plan. That you're an image bearer of God, but you also recognize who they are. They're image bearers of God. But even within the church, it's more than that. Jesus died for them. He gave His life for them. If I should humble myself and prefer them above myself and above one another. Colossians 3, put on a heart of humility. Unity is maintained by keeping the bond of peace, which is evidenced by love. It's a bond of perfectness. It's what matures the body. That, that love must be evident within the body to where we're able to humble ourselves and take upon the very person and nature of Christ in a very gentle way. That's what the next term is, gentleness. You know, and this is not some um, effeminate type of um, attribute that men you should shy away from. It's the idea of concert courtesy and considerateness. It involves a willingness. Uh, it's a part of humility. It involves a willingness to waive one's rights. That comes from seeking the common good without being concerned for personal reputation or gain. Like, who does that sound like? Jesus Christ. It considers the other person before, they're at, before yourself. It considers where, they at, where they're at and what their needs are over your own. Like, it doesn't say, like, give it all to me. It says, I'm here to give it all to them. That they recognize that their purpose in the world is not so that... Um, look at Jesus. He, he didn't come down to, to necessarily uh, every man to bow for Him during that time, but He took upon Himself the form of a servant. And He served other men. He didn't come to the church to be served. And say, bow down and worship Me in His human form as, as the God-man. He comes to serve and to wash feet and to give Himself. And so many people come to the church and they're like, well, okay, I'm not getting what I need. Well, are you giving what the rest of the church needs? Like that's how Jesus came into the world. And the most God, one of the most godly things that we can do um, is to enter into the church who is full of um, maladies and disease and things that would cause disunity and to seek the unity with the brethren and say, give me a unity with this person like the Father has with the Son. Like in whatever capacity can I serve them? Like humble, God help me to be humble and gentle and willing to know that like I deserve these things and I, these things are my right, but I'm willing to lay those down. Why? Because this person is, is immeasurable and incalcu- has an incalculable worth in Christ. To be patient is what he says. Assume the, you know, and it brings with it an assumption that it's going to be difficult, right? Like if you have to keep the, be diligent to keep the unity, like then you have to realize that, that Paul is arguing that there won't always be unity or there's something to fight for. Why? Because he knows Jew and Gentile live there together. You know, he knows you and I rub each other the wrong way sometimes. Thus, patience requires an object upon which to be patient with. So assume there's going to be difficulty around you. But assume that, but, but, but humble yourself to recognize that they are worth the wait. The Hebrew concept of uh, patience was um, uh, literally could be long nose. You know, God is said to be patient and long-suffering or to have a long nose in the Old Testament. That's the idea. The idea was is that when a person became angry, that his nose would turn red. So the longer the nose, the longer you had to wait. You know? <laughs> or the more time you had before you got fully angry. The idea is that God has an extremely long nose and that He is patient and long-suffering with His people. Therefore, He delays the wrath. And that you and I are to learn how to control ourselves and to have long noses and to be patient with one another before we have an outburst of wrath. Why? Because Jesus Christ purchased that person. 
And not only that person, but unity with that person. Um, We are to meditate on the patience of God and His amazing grace and purpose. And then we are to show loving tolerance. He literally says, there's some people you're going to have to put up with. Right? That's what he says in Ephesians 4. Uh, Endeavoring to keep the... He says, bearing up with one another in love. He says, you know, um, just be ready. There's going to be some people that rub you the wrong way. There's going to be some people that you don't quite mesh with. Um, there's going to be some people that, you know, you were birthed into the family of God and, like, you're going to get there. And, and the, you're not going to coalesce inherently on the, on, on, the, on the surface. But through time, you can cultivate a love in which and bearing with Him, just like Jesus does with you. Like how many times throughout the week, like, naturally speaking, have you rubbed Him the wrong way? You know, like at any time, God would have been faithful and just if he would have just wiped us all off the face of the earth and started again, but he didn't, you know? Like, he puts up with us every single week. Like, isn't that just the most gracious thing, you know? A man who just wakes up day in and day out and, and is just falls short of the glory of God in a family, you know? Like, he just puts up. Like, he bears up with one another. He bears with our sins because Christ put it away. He bears with our failures and our mistakes and our misfortunes and our, um, and our fallings of short, you know? Like, he does that. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us. Like, and it would do us very good um, to learn how to put up with others. You know, love covers a multitude of sins. Yeah, love covers a multitude of sins. We see often defects and things in and we're like, this can never work. Yeah. Jesus looks at defects and things in us and he says, I'll make it work. And we can make it work too. Not of our own accord and by our own strength, but by the power that resides in us because of what we are in Christ. You know? But because of what we are in Christ. Listen, it's a gospel issue. It is. It is such a gospel issue. You know, it grieves my heart to think about disunity within the bodies all over the world and throughout history and possibly here. Like God has just given me a new depth to the grace that He's extended to me in this church and how I am to do everything that I possibly can and even to the giving of myself to maintain the unity. Why? Um, because it, to, to, to lose that is to lose the effectiveness of gospel presentation to a lost and a dying world. He died for certain people here in Kingsport, uh, Tennessee, and he deserves people here in Kingsport, Tennessee. And we are the means by which to accomplish that. We are to be evangelistic, uh, but we are also to be what Christ called us to be here. And when somebody walks in and they spend enough time with us, they're supposed to say, man, that's different. And I wonder some days if like, they would do that. Do we have anything that is... And I think we do, and I just ask that as an examination. I don't do that to demean anybody, but literally... Like, I ask myself that on a weekly basis because I am prone to deceive myself. So these hard examining questions are not to say that we don't, man. Like, I look around and I think that we abound in so many areas, and I praise God for you. Like, God pushes me on in maturity. Why? Because of the love that you've expressed to me and my family and my wife and my children. And, I can't, you know, I, I, some days I wonder why people are here. Most days I do. I do. Because I have so many defects, I have so many failures, I have so many misfortunes, I have so many of this. And this isn't to throw a pity party, this is just to say this is reality, you know. And you've extended to me so much love um, that just reinforces and emphasizes the love and the reality that God sent his only son, you know. And I just wish that I could express that to you in some way in return out of the gratitude of God um, that he's extended to our hearts.
the love of God was shed abroad. But it wasn't a love that was isolated or ethereal or, or this or that. It was practical in the giving of himself. So if there's any way that I could ever give myself more to you, um, please don't hesitate to ask. And at the same time, I'm arguing the same for you. Is there any way, you know, are you fed up? Are you this or you that? Are you, you know, you're just like, uh, bear up with us, you know, unless it's an area of sin. And then it needs to be confronted. You know, a person needs to go to person and eventually it needs to be brought before the church. If it's a sin, you know, that is offensive, if it's a sin that brings question to the body of Christ, then it needs to be, it needs to be taken care of according to Scripture. But you know, there's some things that just need to be overlooked. Love covers a multitude of sins. Like we need to be good um, at allowing things to let go. We need to be good at forgiving and forgetting. We need to, um, why? Because God was good at that and he's still good at that and he requires us to be good at that to keep and endeavor in the unity of the faith with all humility, patience, long-suffering, and a hundred other attributes that we are falling short of. So let us beg God that he would give those things to us. Let us beg God. This is a huge issue. Um, again, I'm not saying that there is any disunity, but I'm asking all of us to examine our hearts and say, and say, like, is there something that I need to take care of in the body today? Like, does that describe us at the beginning? Because if it does, then there's a good chance there is disunity. But how do we fix that? Every person takes personal responsibility um, to raise the questions that need to be raised, to confront the sin that needs to be confronted, or to overlook the things um, that are defective and, and, and ultimately failures, but they're not ultimately sin. You know? That's what we need to do individually. So this week, today, tomorrow, sometime, if you come to me, I won't be surprised. And it won't hurt my feelings. Because the body of Christ matters that much. We need, and I'll do the same for you, we need a unity that testifies of the grace of God um, that is out of this world. We need to be what Christ bought us to be. And sometimes that's difficult, and sometimes that's messy, um, but on the other side, that's glorious, because that's what the world doesn't have. They fight, and they bicker, they divide, and they go their way. Not us. Not us. And I'm not saying there's never a good way to leave. There's never a good time to leave. Paul and Barnabas often do, you know. We praise God for that. There's always a time to separate, but never over this. You never leave um, like this. Christians work it out. Christians extend grace. Christians, um, why? Because they are. They don't do. They are. This is what we must do because this is who we are. Is that you? Maybe you've heard something today that you have no idea what it is because you're an unbeliever. I beg you today and implore you on behalf of Christ to come unto him. And he promises um, if there's anxiety and turmoil and, and like an ocean waving in your heart and your soul, um, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you peace, he says. Have you ever known the peace of God? Or are you at war with him today? Have you ever known the peace of God in your home with your family? Or are you always at war? Could it be that you don't have Christ? I beg you today to look to him, to bow before him. And to give your life to him and yield yourself to him because of the grace that he's extended in Christ to you. To purchase you out of the world and to give you a hope of your calling that is beyond. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glorious nature of your grace. God, bringing things together that ought not be. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit should, who should have no dealings with man. 
because of his debauchery, his depravity, and his utter wickedness. God, we condemn other men for their great depravity, whether it's serial killers or Adolf Hitler himself committed genocide. We think of rapists as the ultimate enemies, and they are. Um, they just have less restraint than us. Or they have more, yeah, they have less restraint than us. Because, Father, we're murderers at heart. We're adulterers in our inner man. When you should not have came, you did. Your son humbled himself with an ever-gentle spirit, was so long-suffering and patient all throughout history, and bore up with us when we ought not have been born with. To birth us into a family, Father, to put away the enmity between God and man, and between man and man. And I just pray, Lord, that for the rest of my days, as long as you give me here, that that would be the endeavor of this church, that we would strive for it, putting one foot in front of the other, just being that with one another because you have been that with us. Father, we recognize that we need you to do this, though, because we are inept and impotent otherwise. So, Lord, build your church, and I trust that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is your work, but at the same time, help us to work out our own salvation, and we'll trust you to do and to will of your good pleasure in us. In Jesus' name, amen.